Oh, throughout history, throughout human history, the telling of story has been a tool utilized to help explain the world around us and to help pass on information and knowledge about the world around us. And scripture does the same thing in many ways. And people debate what parts of scripture are literal and what parts are stories meant to help us understand things. And those are all fine scholarly debates to have. We won't get into those today. But suffice to say, there are some key elements in some of the stories in scripture that we can find in other parts of the world and in other cultures that have helped those people to understand. Things like creation. You can take our creation story and you can put it up against um, other creation stories and find similarities. You can even find where the two stories are debating with each other about the origins of the world. You can find in other cultures, in other histories, stories that are similar to our story of the great flood and of Noah. The difference in our stories and the other stories of the world is that God plays a central role in those stories and we play a central role in those stories. And we believe that we have a part to play in the story God is writing. And so we carry our stories with a bit more of a holy context and, and a, a greater degree of truth as it relates to our relationship with God. But throughout history, stories have been used to explain things that exist. God's stories, and whether we take them completely literally or not, do more than simply explain things. They also reveal things. They reveal things about us, about God, and about his nature. And so we have a story in Genesis chapter 11 related to the verse that Thomas read for us that is one of those classic Sunday school stories. You know, there are certain stories in the Bible that make really good Sunday school stories because you can, you can, you know, have pictures of them and they're just very vivid. Or if you're my generation or older, you remember flannel graph. I went to one of those churches that still had the old flannel graph and I remember the old flannel tower and all the people and looking confused. The, the story of the Tower of Babel is, is really great because it really captures kids' imagination and it helps to explain something that's very evident in the world around us. And that is we are divided across the world through many different things. And one of those things is language. Language has played a major role in shaping world history because we have different languages. And we seek to communicate and to work with one another, and yet we have this barrier that has had to be overcome. At some point, someone had to try and learn and understand another language so that they could bridge the gap in communication. Well, how do we explain to people throughout history why language is different? Well, we, we come up with these stories, and again, different cultures have different stories to explain this, but we as Christians have in our scripture a story that explains it, and it involves God. And as I said, it does more than explain. It reveals something about our Heavenly Father and what He looks for in us and what we look for in Him. The story is told in Genesis chapter 11. If you want to turn there and follow along, we'll read. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks, burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name, 
Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, when I heard this story growing up in Sunday school, the way it was kind of presented in the way that at least I interpreted it was that uh, a bunch of people got together and decided they wanted to build a tower into heaven. And I don't know whether it was taught this way to me or whether I just came up with this, that somehow they were trying to get to where God is. And that was a no-no because God did not want them to get up here there where he was that way. And so God is going to work to thwart this plan. As I read it now, understanding some of the context and looking back, It doesn't seem that their efforts were in any way designed to bring them closer to God. What it seems they were trying to do was to raise themselves up in a different kind of way. They were, now, when they talk about building a city and building a tower, we know that ancient cities often had something like a tower in it, and this was the place of protection. This was the place where they would run. In Scripture, we see uh, God described as a strong and mighty tower. Uh, a source of protection. And that's an important component of understanding the history, that they would have these cities, a central place where they would go for safety if there was siege, if there was war, if there was fighting or danger. And so these folks are going to build a city. And at the center of that city, they want a tower. And why do they want to do this? Well, they state their motive. We're going to do this and build a name for ourselves. It's going to be the mightiest of towers and the mightiest of cities. And we will glorify ourselves by the building of this tower. I used to look at that and think, well, they're trying to get up there to God, and and God had to stop that. And then that leaves me with questions. Well, would it have been possible for them to build a tower all the way to get to heaven? No, the word heavens here just means the firmament, the sky. They want to build it up taller than anything around and they want to glorify themselves. That's what they're after. They're looking for their own glory. And this brings to mind a really, I love this word. I like fun words, and this is a fun word. The word is hubris. We don't use the word hubris enough, but we should, because it's a real thing. Hubris uh, is meant to describe, and it comes from from the Greek, uh, and particularly from Greek tragedy literature and, and plays. Hubris is the defiant arrogance of mankind to disrupt the divine order. So whenever someone would seek to do something that was not in the will of the gods of the time, and the gods in the story would intervene and stop whatever they were trying to do or thwart their plan, this was an example of hubris, and that's where we get that word. It is an ignorant, arrogant defiance of the divine order. And we see the hubris of those at Babel as they build this tower because they are seeking to disrupt something in God's will and in the order that he has defined for mankind. This disregard for God's will leads them to want to glorify themselves by what they can construct physically. And we see as we continue the story, verse 5, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language, and this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they propose to do will be impossible for them. It's an interesting statement that God makes. It's very insightful. God surveys the situation, and he goes, How are they doing this? Well, it's because they have the ability to communicate and work together. 
He recognizes right away a key element in their ability to build things for themselves and to honor themselves. And it has to do with the unification of language. Now, who's God talking to? Is he just strolling about talking to himself here? No, because if you look at the pronouns, that he uses these plural pronouns. And we see this in the early parts of Genesis and the creation story. We see this throughout Scripture. And we understand, as we reflect back on Scripture from this side of it, that God is not alone, that he is uh, all the three parts that are one and one part that is three. We understand the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so he uses these plural pronouns because he says in verse 7, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. By the way, what was the one thing they were seeking to avoid by building this city? What was their reason? Because if not, we will be scattered across the whole earth. They were trying to provide safety and security that would lead to the building of an empire and power and glory because they didn't want to be scattered. And what happened when God confused their language? They had no choice but to lay down their tools and go their separate ways. God looked down on the hubris of these people. He looked down on the arrogance of of their work and determined that the best thing to do was to confuse their language. Now, why is this? I think primarily because we see very clearly in Scripture, God opposes self-glorification. He opposes the glorifying of oneself for one, one's own self's sake. He doesn't like when we get high and mighty and do things for our glory. He tends to put a stop to that. Now, is that because God is an egomaniac and no one else can be as good as him? Is that because he doesn't want anybody else to get any attention and he demands all of our loyalty and all of our respect? Well, I wouldn't put it in those words. Because if we look at God's interaction with his people, when he has to, when he has to kind of dampen our efforts and he has to humble people and he has to bring us down, it's not simply because we have offended him and he wants to punish us. Very little of that tends to be punitive. And when you look at the story of Babel, it's not really an effort to punish these people for their hubris, but it is an effort to distract them and divert them from self-glorification because glorifying ourselves, God understands and tries to teach us, is not going to get us where we need to be. And there are times when God has to humble people and put them in precarious circumstances and situations to teach them that only through him and through his son later will we find glory. And that's not an effort, that's not an us versus him kind of thing. That is God trying to get us where we need to go when we would be willing to settle for less, which is glorifying ourselves. And so God, knowing that for mankind to get where it needed to be, it had to be less focused on itself and more willing and open to accept the leadership of God Almighty. We see that with the Israelites as he humbles them through war, through famine, through different, different struggles and hardships. We see that even in our own life. We have a, a religious and theological construct that God has put in place that gives absolutely no weight to our deeds for achieving the end goal. 
Now, our deeds matter. They are, they are the result of an active, obedient faith. But nowhere in Scripture does it say, if you do X, Y, and Z, you can be good enough to go to heaven. What Scripture says repeatedly is that you are saved by grace through faith. Now, we have this systematic theology that says we are powerless to actually get rid of all of our sin. That's a pretty humbling kind of thing to understand and recognize I can do a whole lot of things, but I can't do that one thing. That's a way that God, by the, the, the use of his son and this kind of relationship he's established, that's one way God has humbled us. And where does that leave mankind but to cry out for someone or something to step in to save us? And that someone is Jesus Christ. God knows what it takes to get us where we need to be. And sometimes to get us there, he has to eliminate all the other options. And with these people building this city and this tower, God has to eliminate that option so that they will no longer be focused on themselves for glory, but look elsewhere to place glory and attention and to be willing in their hearts to follow something that's not their own will. And so because mankind ignored the need for God and sought their own glory, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit work in concert together to destroy their effort and forever separate mankind. The results of this help to explain why the world is divided into tribes and nations and tongues, but also help to reveal God's purpose in working through our lives. And so God scatters into separate communities, into different worlds, into different cultures, and these things develop and grow. And if we read this story, we come to the end and we ask ourselves, is this some form of cruelty? Because if you just read this story, this looks pretty cruel. The image I have of this God figure in this story doesn't feel very positive. Here is a group of people trying to accomplish something for their own safety and to build a city and to, and to provide. And God says, no, I'll have none of that. Confuse your language, scatter you into separate communities, divide the world, and look at all the struggles that a divided world brings us. Well, is God being cruel? Is God unreasonable? Is he that opposed to man exercising his own will? If this were the end of the story, I think it would be fair to conclude that. But our story doesn't end in Genesis chapter 11. It continues on. And in Acts chapter 2, and that's a big fast forward, by the way. We're going to jump real far. We go from Genesis 11 to Acts chapter 2. Something really interesting happens in Acts chapter 2. Something that one might consider to be the end of the story, the epilogue to Genesis chapter 11. God looks down on the people in their hubris and scatters them amongst the earth by dividing their language, thus forcing them to rely and have their hearts open to follow. And how does that story conclude? Look at Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues of fire distributing themselves. They rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. 
Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each of them was hearing them speak in his own language. So here we have divided language still existing on earth, people coming together, people speaking in different languages and different tongues, and yet each one of them hearing in his own language. They were amazed, verse 7, and astonished, saying, why are, not all these, uh, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. That's a beautiful conclusion to a rather beautiful story if we make that connection. God looks down at people seeking self-glorification raising themselves up, putting their trust in one another and in their mighty construction. And he says, that's not going to get mankind where it needs to be. I'm going to open their hearts. I'm going to soften them. I'm going to make them desperate for my protection and my love. So I will separate them and divide them with language. And he did that through the power of the Holy Spirit and of Jesus. They were there when that happened because he says, come, let us go down and do this. And fast forward thousands of years the day of Pentecost, Jesus has come, he has died, he has ascended to be with the Father. And through the power of the Holy Spirit that was ushered in by Christ, language which was once confused is brought back together. And this time, not for man to unify and glorify themselves, but what does the scripture say? That they were astonished because they were hearing about the mighty works of God. When the language was reunified, the words uttered were not the glorification of man, but the glorification of God. His plan worked. And it concludes this epic saga. But the story's still not over because we're still writing a story. We're still telling a story and we're still living a story. And God has given us, in many respects, a complete story when it comes to the language and why mankind is so divided and separated and how we can solve that problem and cure that ill and bring it back together. To humble mankind, Jesus, or excuse me, God divided and scattered, and yet he did not leave us there, but through the Holy Spirit and through Christ brought us back together, both literally in a unification of language on that day and spiritually through the union in baptism and faith in Jesus Christ. We are part of a community, part of a nation, part of a family. And it shows us that there is no chasm, no division that is so deep and so wide that God cannot span it. Whether it be language, our culture, our differences, socioeconomic, political, different ideas, whatever it is that divides, God can unify. And we see that example at Babel. In order for us to succeed in this life, in order for us to fulfill our duty as Christians to share the gospel with those in need, we must all speak with one language. We must all have unity in the words that we say. 
And where do we get those words? Not from ourselves, but we speak the words of our Father. We speak the words of His Son. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, as He worked at Babel, as He worked at Pentecost, God will get us where we need to be. He will write that story, but we have to let Him. May we all seek to humble ourselves, to set aside the hubris that comes with being human, and to open our hearts and our minds to being unified with Christ, with our Father, and with one another by speaking the same language, the language of God's love expressed through the death of His Son, His resurrection, and our living in righteous obedience. If you have a need this morning to realize that walk in life a little better, if you need encouragement, if you need a family or a community to share that with, that's what we're here for. And we offer an opportunity at this time together for you to make that known and us to help you with that as Jonathan comes and leads us in song.